29% Equal is a podcast celebrating significant women who have shaped how we practice architecture today. Produced by me, Sarah Ackland. I'm a practicing architect and PhD researcher studying gendered bodies in public space. So why 29% Equal? Well, the last formal survey undertaken by the ARB, or the Architects Registration Board, was in 2019. This revealed that only 29% of qualified architects are female identifying. Women are routinely excluded from the architecture profession, from the books we read, and even the references and precedents that we study at university. In an effort to eliminate this erasure of women, I have asked a young architect, designer, artist, or activist from Part W, and some of their friends, to have a discussion with a woman they feel deserves recognition, or perhaps more recognition. We ask these amazing women about their defining moments, their activism, who inspires them, the advice that they would give to their younger selves, and finally, what a more equitable city might look like. Hi, and welcome back to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. In today's episode, Tahira Rofe, a friend of Part W, architect and associate at RCKA, speaks with the incredible Bashi Musafi. Bashi is Iranian-born and founded her own office, She is well known for her design of the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland. She has also been appointed an OBE and most recently received the Jane Drew Prize for Architecture. She is a professor at Harvard University and during this interview she discusses her time working at Zaha Hadid's studio. She talks about learning and unlearning and how it is really important to work for somebody else first. She shares her refugee experience and how being a minority can really create strength in design. This episode left Tahira and I in awe. The sound clarity on this episode isn't perfect, so please bear with us. It's worth listening to. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Here's Tahira and Fashi. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Fashi. It's such an honour to be able to talk to you and part of this kind of platform it's hardly an opportunity in normal architecture so to be able to kind of have this uh, occasion is amazing I'm on maternity leave so I always find doing these things in my maternity time much more enjoyable I think for me what's really important is that you know women in a really male-dominated kind of getting a foothold in a quite male-dominated industry can be a bit of a tough one to maneuver but it's not to say that you know, there aren't successful women in all of this. So my question really is, is there a a defining moment for you in your career as a woman? It could be anything, really, anything that's really defining and has really sort of been a moment of growth for you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, well, first of all, good to meet you too. And thank you for making the time to talk to me. Defining moment, I feel like I am always, you know, trying to define my career. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself comfortable in my career by any means. I know, you know, I have won awards, I have built projects, but people don't know how much, how many I have lost, how much time has gone to, to, to projects, you know, work that gets kind of abandoned. So it's not easy. I don't think actually being an architect, whether you're a female or a male architect, it's easy. But I wouldn't say it has got necessarily easier because as you, you 
gets, let's say, more established, the stakes are also higher. You know, in some ways, when I, I look back and at the very beginning, when I didn't have to worry about, you know, running a company and covering the overhead and et cetera, in a way, it was easier. And the more you get established, the more responsibilities you have. And actually, it is tougher. And I wouldn't say, so I'm competing with, let's say, if, if we want to talk about the difference between, you know, men and women, I'm competing with men who are much more established now compared to perhaps, you know, earlier. So I wouldn't say it's, it's easier. I am, but I've always thought that the only thing one can do is to find, to turn it around and say, what does the position of minority, what freedoms does it give me? You know, what does it give me? And how can I work on that rather than focus on, you know, in a way, equality to men, because I'm not really sure if that's really in our hands. I mean, we can work on it you know, as a, as a kind of a discipline, but I'm not really sure that we can control the result, but you can control your work and, you know, what you work on and what issues you take up and uh, the kind of creativity you throw at it. I, I love that you've spoken about, you know, the freedom of minority, because often we get bogged down about how being a minority is so inhibiting and how we can't, you know, that I want, you know, you want to have the space and the platform to be able to, you know, express yourself and, and be heard. But actually that freedom of minority is really interesting. And I wonder if you have an example of where those freedoms of, of your, of being a minority has kind of, I guess, at the most, for you at, or yeah, um, at the most basic level, think, think about it when you are a tourist in a, in a city, tourists are, more free than, than people who are, who are familiar with the rules and the codes and the conventions of a place. They can, you know, take shortcuts that maybe people who are kind of from the place either don't dare to because they know perhaps what, what might lie behind. And, but because of that, they don't experience parts of a city or perhaps they are, they are into their routine and they simply stick, they don't explore, they don't go out of their way to look at anything out of what they just do every day and, you know, repeatedly. So I, I think when you are an outsider, which, you know, any minority experiences, you have a kind of a broader kind of set of possibilities in front of you. You don't, you're not so narrow and you're not limited to ways that have been established by other people and by the consensual kind of mass and etc. And you can be, you can create your own path. And I think when you think about it in, in any kind of design creative industry, you know, in order to be creative, you need to step outside of the ordinary. You not need to look at things differently. And any kind of minority has that as a given because you're an outsider. So I, I think that Lots of freedoms comes, come with it. I don't want to undermine or underestimate, you know, the drawbacks that, you know, like security, securing work, etc. Those are realities of also being in practice. But when you are 
in front of a piece of work. I, I think that I would advocate everyone to be try to try to be an outsider. What's really, I guess, it's it's a really hard question when you're when you're asked the, you know, where is do you is there a specific moment in your career where it really changed the trajectory of where you're going? And I think what you're trying to say is, for me, is actually there are, you know, you are constantly exploring and constantly finding new ways of looking at things and actually they're the defining moments is that kind of is that sort of the type of way you see your defining moment or do you have actually I have this kind of light bulb moment it's really changed my life is that is that something that has happened to you or is happening no no I think the way you said it first I think I, I truly think that that's how the life of an architect unfolds anyway you know if any architect tells us, you know, I decided this, decided my career to go this way, I would be very surprised because, you know, as an architect, you are very much, in a way, your, your practice develops as a result of the work that I don't know how anybody would, would plan. And so I, I think, you know, it's, it's kind of quite difficult. To, I mean, obviously, some people might decide to work only, say, for the public sector, only for the private sector, only work on hospitals, then you decide to narrow it. But if you don't do that and you remain open, then your career will evolve in lots of unpredictable ways. And I think I find that exciting because then it means that whenever, I mean, I don't feel, because of that, I don't feel any more established. Mm. And now than when I first started, because I'm open to a completely new challenge uh, with a new project, rather than just going after the project that the kind of project that I've done previously and kind of applying that to it. Having said all this, you know, I, I have had a very unusual start to my career because the very first competition that we did, we won. And it was a large competition and it gave us a lot of exposure to other opportunities and I don't want to, you know, undermine that. So I think, and that was pure luck because, you know, it was a competition with 799 other people, uh, other practices, and we could have lost, but we won. And after that, I've done a lot of other competitions that I think they were really great projects, but we didn't win. So, you know, we were lucky then. And we were, you know, I think it was, it was a very important marker and that luck came then. and. The luck didn't repeat necessarily many, many hundreds of times afterwards. <laughs> well, but you just keep going. I remember as a student when you won it and it was so impressive. And I just remember being a huge admirer. So, you know, to be able to, for you to say that that, that was your kind of your, your seismic moment or one of the many seismic moments, it feels like, you know, it, it, I think it resonates across everybody who watched you guys win it and, and sort of like, evolve as a company I suppose the question really I have is do you have a favorite building or your of your own or you know that you feel incredibly proud of I'm proud of all the projects I mean you know I in my experience you know architectural projects take between six to ten years at least and you know unless they are very small and they are the result of a lot of forces coming together and against a lot of odds along the way. And every one of them is a miracle by the time they happen. And 
they they are also the result of hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours of thinking and passion that goes into them. So to me, every single one of them is special. I mean, they are the circumstances of them all have been very different. Obviously, the one in Japan, because we had never built anything by ourselves before, and it was in Japan, and we didn't yeah. speak Japanese, and it was a very unusual project. Of course, it, it has been to this day the biggest learning curve. Everything else that followed seemed seems easier, much easier. Even if every client that comes after, they think their project has been unique and very hard, and can you do it, and et cetera. I think the Yokohama project has been the most challenging. But I, I would say every one of them has, you know, we've had to learn how to cope with recessions along the way, how to cope with mayors, you know, halting the project for, for a while or, you know, the budget being cut in half and all these things that throw up, you know, become hiccups in the process and, and force you to, to reassess the project and rethink it and see how you can steer it towards a kind of a new path of uh, clarity. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think architecture is, is architectural practice, I think is interesting because it doesn't stop surprising you. Yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, I guess you've had such an amazing sort of career and you've, you've done so many amazing projects. Do you ever see, you know, a sense of activism in, in there? Do you think there is, architecture is a, is a platform for that? Yeah, I mean, I have a, a new book that is about to be released and it's called Architecture and Micropolitics. So I'm, I'm very interested in in the discussion of politics in relationship to architecture, but architectural politics and how architecture can, you know, be relevant uh, in how, you know, we deal with our day-to-day life or we deal with the planet, etc., through its own means, through its own means, through, you know, how can we be designing housing and addressing issues of, let's say, equality, equity is another way to say it, or how we can address change, which is a hallmark of, you know, our contemporary reality and how we can allow people living in a housing block to have a sense of empowerment over their own space. You know, if you think about Perhaps in the, in, if we look at schools, learning environments, how, you know, circulation spaces that we used to think are just, you know, in between spaces, with, between learning spaces, can actually be spaces for informal learning. Whichever building, let's say, typology we think of, there are different, there are different things at stake. And I think I see our role as architects in connecting the elements of buildings to these issues. You know, thinking about the relevance of the handrail, the the relevance of the stair, the relevance of, you know, structure, the relevance of the building envelope. And 
all of these things in different situated in different kind of buildings have can carry different agencies and i've been very interested in this i you know all all my kind of function researches are very much about this i mean you could say function of let's say form or function of style or function of ornament the word function is actually you could exchange it for the word agency that's the agency really, of that's really powerful i feel that architects often sit in a very really powerful position in transforming spaces you know we can either you know, do something and you know we get a pay and we kind of carry on with our lives or we can put something down and really think about well can I transform it to the person that's using can it be incredible and I feel that a lot of the work that you do you do you always you're thinking about what is that person going to experience when they're there how are they going to use it and is that something that it's grown have you recognized this as you've gone through your architecture career or is this something that was embedded right from the beginning as a you know the person I, I think I think it's been it's been there from the beginning but I would say I've been more I've been trying to articulate it and I've been trying to let's say through research and teaching also perhaps find a way to let's say theorize it as part of how we think about the practice, I think after FOA, maybe we were more intuitive. I mean, I think that the Yokohama Port Terminal is both a project that works with, you know, new means of kind of dealing with the process of architecture, given digital tools that were incredibly kind of, you know, new at the time. But, but also, I think it is, it, is a, it is a very kind of social and political piece of work because it took, you know, a terminal that would have been just a destination, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, you know, yen would have been spent just to make a building that is most of the time empty because large cruise ships don't moor at the building daily. And we turned it, we turned it into a hybrid building, into one which is a kind of a public space. And over time, it's the buildings, you know, what we introduced as the secondary use of it has actually become the primary use of the building. And the building is a building for anyone in the city and not just people who are traveling through it. It is designed to treat everyone equal because there are no stairs, you know, in a, in a transportation building, people who have any kind of mobility, this, you know, disadvantage or disability have are disadvantaged. And so there are many different levels that, you know, it, it tries to introduce the idea of equality, the equality of the visitor with the, with, the, with the citizens who are actually paying for it because, you know, it's a public project. The equality between people who might be using a pram or a wheelchair with people who are not. Uh, there are, you know, people who might, the equality of people, big companies who might rent space in the building, but people who can just walk over the roof and, you know, have kind of informal gatherings without having to pay anything. So I think these are there, but perhaps we didn't, you know, we didn't articulate them quite in those terms. I, I think I, after FOA, during my own practice, I think I've been very interested in, in finding also defining also how these politics 
manifests itself and, you know, exploring this through my books, etc. I am I'm really interested in, in what you spoke about, you know, equality in spaces. And I wonder whether actually, you know, your perspective as a as a woman brings or your lived experience brings brings that to life, you know, the idea that you know, making things the equality of space mm-hmm. it comes from a lived experience. And I wonder whether that is for you. Or actually, that's more a case of just being a bit of an outsider and being able to get a bigger perspective because you're an architect. Then you know you have the this kind of yeah. knowledge of an architect, and and it's what where, is, where does it come from? Where where does that sort of sense of equality of spaces come from for you? Is it from you, yourself? Yeah, you know, I used to think that you you start every project from from being completely kind of you know neutral and opening yourself to to, to every project as if it's a kind of a completely new start. But actually, the older I've got, the more I'm also conscious of the fact that you carry with you certain kind of attitudes that are, that are subconsciously there and that you, you, they, they are present when you make decisions at any one time. And, you know, I'm not just kind of, I don't just carry the minority, let's say, hat on as a being a woman in a male dominated profession, I'm also, you know, a political refugee, you know, since the age of 14. And I've always wanted to feel as if I belong wherever I am. And I generally feel that I feel that way. And that's how I try to behave. But I think being, you know, a refugee and being a woman, etc. I, I think it makes you sensitive to, I, I can't tell you how awful I feel these days, given the Ukraine thing, because I, I, I know that each one of these people who are, are becoming, have become suddenly refugees, it is going to take about 40 years before they find their feet on the ground. It's incredibly sad. And so, you know, I think you, you, you remain sensitive to, you know, you don't just kind of think about it if you are designing a ferry terminal, the issue of equality. You carry that with you wherever you are and at every moment of the day. And one of the things I really love about London is the fact that it is so diverse. It makes it richer. It makes you experience things because of the fact that other people are different to you because you are not surrounded with people who are all the same, yeah. you don't stop learning from other people. Yeah, yeah, no, amazing. I mean, it kind of nicely sort of segues into sort of my next question, you know, like the idea that actually, you know, you are, you're amongst so many variety of people and you are yourself, are, if you had an OBE and etc. amazing accolades like that. <laughs> But for yourself, you know, do you have somebody that absolutely inspires you? Forgotten woman, maybe, that, that you kind of, re- it resonates with you as a person or your work? I mean, I can kind of name many people for different reasons, but for their work, because you said forgotten. Because I, I don't forget that most people these days, we have a lot of channels to gain recognition. I think if you do good work, despite the fact that, you know, there are fewer women. We, we have channels. We, have, we don't need 
big journals anymore to 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 share our work. And I mean, I love the fact that you know the internet has made it so democratic. So I think it would be hard to to find a lot of forgotten people unless they are of an older generation. And recently, not not so long ago, you know, I I came across a group of architects in France who were working on social housing. And two of them are, were women. And one of them was not only the architect, but chief planner of this whole, let's say, town on the periphery of Paris called Ivry. Her name is René Gail-Houstet. You know, her work is, to this day, I think, remarkable because, you know, it, it promoted the idea of diversity, choice, uh, ecology in social housing. She actually introduced a very good male architect to be introduced to this kind of big master plan that she was she was in charge of, Jean Renaudy and 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 other architects, Ivona Bakskowska, who is originally Polish but is in France. So when I met Ivona and I came across the work of Rene, I was kind of amazed that this, you know, dual kind of development in France had been absent from my architectural education. But I think that in France, you know, recently, I think there's been a kind of a, a comeback and they are now, you know, I think the people are looking at them. I have been promoting their work and, and using them as role models in my teaching at, at Harvard. So I, uh, hopefully, you know, they are, they are going to be, their work will be shared with, with lots of people. I think they are, it's, it's, a, it's an exceptional development in France in housing. I think we have a lot to learn from them. And in your early career, you worked at Zaha Hadid. For you, was she a woman that, she was, a, I suppose, for her time, a woman in a really, really quite a, in a movement that was, had a lot of men in it. And I wonder whether when you joined, you saw Zaha as a feminist and, and a woman that you looked up to, or was it something more of a mutual, you know, she is an architect and that's the first thing that I am here and I'm learning from. What was your very early sort of experiences of that? I was an intern in her office, so I was not, I was a student, right? So from, I think it may have been from my maybe first year in architecture in the summers I, when I would come back to London or to the south, my parents were in, in Brighton. I would, I would go and yeah, I was an intern. I, I didn't work on any kind of project in that sense, but would be helping, helping out with different things. I, I think Zaha was, you know, so it was very early days in Zaha's uh, practice, right? Very, very small office, very few people there. I think she was, you know, from very beginnings, uh, an exceptional person, you know, very confident, knew that she wanted to do the kind of work that she eventually ended up, you know, building. So this was inspiring, you know, her confidence was inspiring. I mean, I think that we need to remember that that kind of confidence and being able to do with what she did also came with the fact that she didn't have to go and work for anybody else. Mm. Yes. You know, she finished the AA and she could immediately rent like a massive kind of building that to this day is their office. And I think those things are important. 
It's important because I was really lucky to win a competition. And if I hadn't, I wouldn't have ended up doing other things. It is important, you know, the steps that you can take at the beginning. And, you know, I, I think the fact that she, she had that ability is something that not everybody has. And we must not forget that, you know, not everybody can afford to do this and that, you know. <laughs> I think that all of these things are important. I, I, I think there are so many talented people that don't get the break, maybe because they don't, they don't get their lucky break, or maybe they don't have the possibility to open their own office at the same time. I personally think it's very important to work for other architects. I think you learn how to be a good employer later on. When you are yourself an employee somewhere else, it's important to see it from the other side. And one of the things that I did learn working for other architects was also what not to do. Yes. What not to do. What not to do, how not to set up your office. You learn things, but you also learn how not to do things. And it's quite important. Yes, yes. And have you, have you ever been actively, because in often you've been in an office situation nowadays in 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 the politics of architecture, you know, offices want to be appearing to be as diverse as they possibly can. And there's an active recruitment to be like, you know, I need to get this diversity included and that diversity included. For you, is that important? How do you weigh up, you know, someone who's, who needs to be in this space because they're going to add value versus I need to feel like... You know, I, I haven't had to do it because I think the... the... I, I guess maybe because I was not born in the UK, we attract, you know, a broad range of people from different places, different cultures. I am relaxed about that. I had that we haven't had that issue, but uh, I am conscious of it. You know, there's been some times when, you know, our female numbers are less or, than the male numbers, but I don't want it to become a forced thing, mm. you know. So if you were reflecting on your younger self and you had to give yourself a, a piece of advice, what would it be? I would say don't let anybody else define what architecture is for you. And don't take it for granted because architecture is something that has to change all the time to remain relevant. So go and define it. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I often, you know, reflecting on it as a, as a woman, it's quite a hard thing to do because it always relies on you to be full of wisdom. You know, you need to be able to feel like, oh, I've, I've, I've got wisdom and I need to be. Do you feel that you, you, you can kind of reflect on things and think, well, actually, I'm gonna, I'd rather have it this way or change this or this. Do you ever do that to yourself or is it very much like, well, actually, it just took a course in itself? you know and, and the things that have happened sequence of things that happened in your career have just taken its course but there isn't anything that you would sort of say you, you'd do differently you know there are things that I don't I'm not good at and I know them I the wisdom that I feel I have compared to before is being more clear about what I know and what I don't know you know and what I am good at and what I am not mm. And that, I guess, gives you a certain confidence to be able to 
to talk about things that you know and to say when you don't know. I think this is important. I think it's important because when you know what you don't know, then you go to try to learn about them or to collaborate with other people who know. And I'm pretty sure unless you, again, you really narrow down what you work on architecturally, you are always going to feel a little bit out of depth because you never, you can, you, you would never have worked on every single architectural problem. And frankly, the reality out there changes constantly. So even people who are highly specialized are constantly out of their depth because we need to constantly learn and unlearn and learn what we know because reality out there changes. So we need to be relevant and exactly. it's, a, it's a changing scene. Absolutely. And, and finally, I think that's, makes me sort of wonder what your sort of outlook on on society is it's kind of a broad big question but if you were to see if you have to describe an equitable city for you what does that look like what does an equitable city look like for you it's one where you know people it's a city that is not defined by finance and where everyone is, has equal access to it. And therefore you find in, in a, a city like London, which is wonderful because of its diversity, you see that section of diversity at every point of every street. You don't spread this diversity horizontally, if you see what I mean. Like you say that, you know, these people go to this kind of borough and those people go to that borough, that, that there is a true mixing. Just because I think that we are bigger when we complement each other because we extend, you know, we fill each other's gaps. I think that a city which is not defined by finance. Because that, that, in a way, makes kind of... I guess when that happens, you're no longer bound to part of the barriers. The moment finances make spaces even, it makes there's no divisions, there's no barriers. You don't have the gated communities where you one person enters in this door and another person enters in that door because you can afford to buy that house just like the other person. I mean, that's that's really powerful and it's really it's quite you know it's it's, it's quite telling of us as architects being quite in, in making, making that work. And I, and I don't know whether you, you ever are conscious of, of, you know, breaking those barriers. Because, you know, when you, when you get a project, you see, well, actually, for me, it's really important that I am. I mean, and you mentioned your yeah. partner being, it was, you know, quite inadvertently done. Yeah. But I think as an architect, sometimes like, you know, Yokohama was, was, was a very special case because it was an international competition and we proposed an idea and we were very lucky that the jury and the client were willing to embrace it. In privately, let's say, commissioned projects, very often these kind of ideas, you have to be subversive. You have to, you have to introduce them subversively to a project because ultimately the person who is commissioning you is doing it because they want to earn money. So, you know, you have to find other ways of doing it. But I think it's possible. It's not, it's, it's not 
you find different, let's say, scales of it in different projects. You know, we worked on a museum in, in America, and at the time when we were commissioned to work on it, it was it was it it required an entry fee, you know, to to access this private museum. And so we came, you know, from London, where we have the Tate Turbine Hall, you know, and that kind of opened not recently. And, you know, we, we, we were excited by the fact that it was a public space, you know, that huge kind of areas of it could be just accessed without ever paying for an exhibition. So we said, well, instead of having a one-story museum, why don't we have it on four floors and put the paid gallery on the top floor then the first three levels are free for anyone to access, you know? And then we made the stair, the public stair of the museum to extend even above the top floor so that even those who don't have a ticket could see it from above. So, you know, you, you can find ways as an architect to do it, uh, but very often you do it as a kind of an agenda of your own inside the project. Well, Fashi, it's been really amazing it's been i mean one because i remember going to yokohama so it's such a privilege to have asked you questions about it now after you know really amazing yeah yeah (laughs) myself and really thank you for you know taking part on this and we ask you quite difficult questions i hope not but maybe difficult questions to you yeah so thank you very much no but difficult questions are good thank you thank you very much Thanks for listening to 29% Equal in conversation with Part W. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. This podcast has been created with thanks to the RIBA Research Fund and supported by Katie Lloyd-Thomas of Newcastle University. Please subscribe to stay updated.